So if you remember with me, in Acts chapter 21, Paul has been on his third missionary journey. He's been traveling basically all over the known world at that time, the Roman Empire. And during his travels, he had made many acquaintances. He had led many people to the Lord. He had started churches and planted them in all these various towns that you see on this map. But on his third missionary journey, about halfway through, he decided he was going to come back to Jerusalem. He was going to bring a free will offering from all the churches in Macedonia and in Achaia and all the churches of Asia. And he was going to bring it back to Jerusalem because they were going through hard times. There had been a famine. There had been a time of, uh, well, persecution. Many of the Christians there, the church was suffering uh, not financially. And so, as many times happens, the body of Christ is not one church or another, but it's the, the global body of Christ. And you got to look at it like Paul described it. It's like, a, uh, it's like an organism. It's like a human body. The head being Christ, but all the other faculties being the different churches and how God uses them is different. But what happens is if you guys know this, if your body gets hurt in any section, if you got somebody steps on your toe, or if you hit your thumb with a hammer, does only one part of the body hurt or does the whole thing hurt? And the reality is, as I was hanging my Christmas lights several weeks ago, I took a hammer and I was hammering and I had my hand there and you can imagine I hit my thumb. Of course, you're on a ladder, and so your whole body just tenses up because you don't want to fall, but you're also in a lot of pain. And so you're just like, you know, and your, your body tenses up. But you'll notice if you've ever done this, and maybe I'm the only one, but probably not, right? If you've hit your thumb with a hammer, it's not just your thumb that hurts. No doubt your thumb is throbbing, but the rest of the body hurts too. It's like it just causes your whole body to just ache, and you just want it to go away. Well, in the body of Christ, it's no different. If the toe gets stubbed, or if the leg gets tripped, or if you, the body of Christ scrapes its knee, the whole body hurts. Whether we can feel that practically or not, it's true. And so what Paul did was, as he was planning all these churches, he knew the needs that were going on in the different areas. And so you can imagine Paul being sent from Antioch, knowing what was going on in Jerusalem, the famine, the persecution. He knew that the body of Christ was hurting, and so he would be talking about it. He'd be praying for them. And it would come off of his lips as he talked with the other churches. Hey, you guys are going through a hard time, but so are they in Jerusalem. And they would hear the things that they were going through in Jerusalem, and they would be moved with compassion. Because Jesus is the head of the church. And we, when he saw the needs, and he saw the multitudes that were hurting, he was moved with compassion. And so when we have compassion, we notice people's needs and we move on them. And the body of Christ is just like that. They knew there was a need in Jerusalem. They knew they had an abundance. God had provided for them more than they needed. And so they took up a thank offering to send back to Jerusalem by the hands of Paul to bless them, to meet them in their need, recognizing that if it wasn't for the church in Jerusalem, the gospel would not have come as far as Achaia and Macedonia on the left side there. And so they send this offering back by way of Paul's hands. And there were many uh, representatives from those churches that brought them back to Jerusalem. But as Paul comes all the way back to Jerusalem, kind of a planes, trains, and automobiles kind of travel session, he meets up with, he stays with people he knows along the way, and he finally makes it there about the time of the Feast of Pentecost. And so when he gets there, 
he goes to Jerusalem to make his offering and he gets there and the leader of the church, James, and the elders there say, hey, you know, there's a lot of people here that know you, Paul, and they hear from other people that you're teaching that they don't have to obey, as a matter of fact, that they're not supposed to obey the law of Moses anymore. And so what we want you to do is rather than uh, doing anything, first and foremost, we want you to go and pay for these four guys who live in Jerusalem. They've made a Nazarite vow. They're following the law of Moses. We want you to pay for their offerings because part of doing a Nazarite vow is to, to give a thank offering to the Lord, but it costs uh, some lambs, uh, a turtle dove, whatever animals that it prescribed, and even a grain offering. Well, that costs money. And they live in Jerusalem. They're going through a famine. There's not much around. So everything's expensive. The economy's bad, you know. And so they said, Paul, in order to kind of bridge the gap, for there to be harmony in the church here in Jerusalem, there are many Jews who are believing in Jesus, but they're still zealous for the law. They, they feel like in order to be a good Christian, they still need to follow the law. Now, Paul had been teaching, you don't have to follow the law anymore. You're freed from the law. The law was not meant for those who were righteous in the sight of God. The law was meant for those who were sinners that needed to look in the mirror and see, hey, I need a savior. I can't live the life that is glorifying to God. I can't live a life that pleases him. And so because of that, Paul, he doesn't tell them, absolutely not. I will not. I don't have to. He says, for the sake of love, I will pay for their offering, not because I have to, but because I want them to be able to listen to my words. I'm going to make a concession so that they'll be willing to hear the words I have to say about Jesus Christ. And so he pays for their offering. Like I said, not because he had to, but for love's sake. He gives up his right in order to go the extra mile, if you will. And so while he's in the temple, he gives this offering. He pays for their offering. He makes his own offering. They shave their heads because during that Nazarite vow, they would let their hair grow. And that whatever hair grew during that section of time, they would cut off and they would burn it as an offering to the Lord, saying, Lord, everything that I have, everything that during this time that grew from me is yours. It's all yours. It's sanctified. It's set apart for your use. And so I count it nothing to me. You can have it. So when he gets done making this offering, he's in the temple and there's an Ephesian man who comes into the temple, into the place where only Jews were supposed to be, Paul was a Jew. This name, man by the name of Trophimus comes into the temple. He's in there. He's a Gentile, but he comes into the inner court where only Jews were allowed. And because Paul had spent much time with the Ephesian church and had made friendships there, he did know Trophimus. But they assumed that Trophimus came in and Paul had brought him in. And so because of that, they get upset with Paul and they start rioting. They want to beat him. Because the penalty for anybody coming inside the inner court of the temple that was not Jewish was death. And they were allowed to do that by Roman law. And so these Jews start a big uh, disturbance within the temple. And there's uh, all kinds of stuff going on. And Paul is in the middle of it. He's getting ready to be beat, scourged, and probably put to death. So in the meantime, on the outside of the the court of the temple, there's this big castle. And it's, a, it's kind of a barracks for the Roman soldiers. And they're watching over it. 
And they were there to keep the peace because during the time of feasts, the Jews, many times there would be these big disturbances and in order to keep the peace, they kind of had to have some guards there. Kind of like we do with our National Guard. They're standing watch and they're looking over what's going on to keep the peace and to keep disturbances from happening for the safety of the public. So they come in just as Paul's getting ready to be beat down and they stop the whole thing. Of course, you can imagine the crowd kind of hushes a little bit and they stop beating Paul because, you know, they're not carrying weapons, but the soldiers are, you know, speak lightly and carry a big stick. So they show up and they say, hey, what's going on? So that's where we find ourselves with Paul last week. He was about to be beat and the Roman soldiers had stopped him and they start to speak to Paul. What's going on? Why was this big riot started? Why are they beating you? And so begin with me in Acts chapter 21, verse 32. It says there that Paul was about to be led into the barracks. In other words, the Romans had taken over control of Paul. They had kind of taken him into uh, captivity, uh, custody. That's the word. They've taken him into custody and they're going to question him. But as they're getting ready to go into the barracks, verse 32, excuse me, 37, says, he said to the commander, this is Paul speaking, he says, may I speak to you? And he replied, the, the leader of the soldiers, he says, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul said, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia a citizen of no average city, and I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So this soldier, this Roman leader, he says, um, aren't you the same guy that a little while ago had started a rebellion, kind of caused a chaotic scene just like this, and you led 4,000 assassins into the, you were going to take over the temple. Aren't you the same guy? Because, and you, if you read the historical writings of Josephus and some others, a few years back, a man came in, just like Paul, had started this big uh, kind of chaotic scene, and as he was in there, he had 4,000 assassins. The Romans saw it, they stopped it, they caught most of the guys, but the leader of them got away. And so they're thinking, at any time, this guy's going to come back and try to do it again. He's going to try and take over the temple. So Paul says, he responds, he says, no, I'm a Jew. I'm from Tarsus of Cilicia, a citizen of no average city. And I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul had been raised um, right there on this right side. You can see Antioch and Syria, and you can see Tarsus there. That's where Paul was raised, in the Roman Empire. And so he responds, he says, no, I'm, I'm, a, I'm from Tarsus. He says, okay. Verse 40, so when he had given him permission, he had asked him, can I speak to the people? Paul stood on the stairs. He motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. And that's where we stopped last week. He was getting ready to address this crowd who had just tried to beat him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but if somebody starts trying to take me over and beat me up, I don't want to talk to him. I got nothing to say. But Paul had a love for these Jews because he was a Jew. And we'll see by the end of today why he had a love for them. 
But he says to them, verse uh, 1 of chapter 22, he says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. He says, this is what I'm getting ready to say. He doesn't say, hey, you jerks that try to beat me up. He doesn't say, hey, stink bait. You know, he doesn't call them names. He says, brethren and father. He addresses them in a respectful way. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, it says they kept all the more silent. Do you guys have a tendency to listen to people a lot easier if you can relate with them? It's nice to have somebody try to teach you something if they kind of run in the same circles you run in. If they have a lot of the same friends, if they speak the same language. You know, some guy shows up and he's speaking British. He's got the accent. I mean, we're more likely to listen to him because he's probably smarter if he has a British accent. But many times we're able to relate to people a lot more if they're one of us. That's why King David was such a good king to the nation of Israel because he wasn't like King Saul who had kind of put himself on a high horse, lived in the castle and and basically never came out. King David was a shepherd boy. God had raised him up from the ranks of being a shepherd to be the king of Israel. And after he became the king, he lived among them. He went out, he came out and he went in before them. He was around them all the time. He didn't travel and, and hang out with people of higher class. He was, he was one of the people. And, and Jesus was like that. He, he was the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords and he will be for all eternity. But when he came to this earth, what did he do? He didn't have a home. He had one pair of clothing. And he lived with his disciples. He didn't have a house on a hill and say, hey, you guys live down there. Like the kings of this world, he lived among them. He says, you know, the birds of the air have nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And so Paul, in the same way, he doesn't speak to them as somebody that's greater than them. You know, like many Christians kind of talk down to non-believers like, what do you mean you don't believe? But he spoke to them as someone who could recognize, hey, I used to be just like you. And in many ways, I still am. I speak Hebrew just like you. He says, and said, excuse me, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language and because of that, they listened. And then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel taught according to the strictness of our father's law. So he was from Tarsus, but he was raised in Jerusalem. And he says to them, I was, here's where I was born, but here was our, here's where I was raised. I was raised in this city, the city of David, the greatest city in all of Israel. He says to them, I was raised according to the strictness of our father's law. I followed it to the T. I, I, cut my teeth on the law. I've read it. I've been a part of this society. You all know me. I was even taught by a man by the name of Gamaliel. Now, we don't know anything about Gamaliel unless we've done a little bit of Old Testament study, but he was basically one of the best teachers you could get to become a rabbi. So Paul's saying, I'm like, if I tried to do it to the best of my ability and I've been taught by the best of the best. So he says to them, and I was zealous toward God as you all are today. The things that you have in your hearts right now to beat me down because you think I'm a blasphemer, 
I follow the law just as much as you do, and I can relate because that's where I came from. I can relate to you being angry and hateful towards me because I was too. And he's going to give his testimony. He's going to explain to them not only that he was a blasphemer, but that he used to be. He's giving them, basically, you can argue with people what you believe about what Scripture says. You can read Scripture to them to your blue in the face. But the testimony of a changed life speaks louder many times than our words. People don't want to hear what we have to say. They want to see what our lives prove that we believe. And so Paul gives them this. Verse 4, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women, as also the high priest bears me witness, and all the counsel of the elders, from whom I also received letters to the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in change, chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. He said, here's how zealous I was. He says, I persecuted this way, these Christians, to the death. I tied them up and I delivered them to Jerusalem to be punished as unbelievers. He says, I spent my time going and pursuing anyone who would follow this Jesus character because I believed wholeheartedly that he was a false prophet. And so I would drag them out of their homes. I even went as far as getting permission slip to go and drag people out of their homes from different cities. See, the high priest had given the, him the authority through a letter to go to different cities to drag people out of their homes. And if somebody would say, hey, who gives you the authority to do this? He said, the high priest, here's my permission slip. Here's my letter of authority. He says, I was not only as zealous as you are here in Jerusalem, but I took it to a whole new level. I was the missionary Gestapo against Christianity. I was going to stop it no matter what. And he says, if you want a testimony of that, you can go ask the high priest yourself. He gave me the letters. He's still in office. And all the council of the brethren. And I went to Damascus to bring in chains, even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. <laughs> but while I was on the way, here's what God did. Here's who I was before Christ. Here's what I did as part of my lifestyle to follow him or to follow God. He says, but here's the deal. God saw me doing that. And in his mercy, he stepped down into my life and he changed things. He chastised me. He stopped me from doing all those things that I thought I was doing for him. He told me, you're, you're against me. You're not doing anything for me. So verse six, it says, it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon, suddenly a great light from heaven, it shone all around me. And I fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you against me? Why are you fighting me? You see, when people persecute the church of Christ, when people persecute those who believe in Jesus, they're not persecuting just them. So you remember I talked about that analogy of the body of Christ. When ISIS lobs the head off of somebody that believes in Jesus Christ and will not deny him for that belief, 
They're cutting the head off of one of Jesus's. They're cutting a toe off the body of Christ. Now when Jesus is affected by that, because he's the head, he hears about it. He hears the cries of those who are being tortured. He does something about it. He acts. He will get involved in the lives of his children, just as like we would. We have our own kids, and when they get hurt and we see that, we feel their pain, we want to get involved. And we do. Sometimes to a fault. We jump in the situation and we help out as much as we can because we love them. We would do anything for them. Jesus looks at you and I like that. He looks at the persecuted church in China just like that. Many people go, well, who's going to act? Why won't our government act in those countries? And we should get involved. But the reality is, whether we do or not, Jesus will have the final say. And those who are against his people and those who torture and even beat them, (laughs) they're going to be punished for that. Apart from them repenting of their sin and receiving Jesus Christ. You also got to remember that. It's not the will that anyone should perish without having been saved by Jesus. So those people that are beheading Christians, they're just as able to be forgiven. I, I can't wrap my head around that. The Lord loves way more than you and I ever will. And his heart is that we would desire not only that justice would be meted out, but also that those who are against Christ would be saved. And so Paul, he recognizes, I I was just as bad. And we'll get to that. But he says there, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul answers, he says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus answered him. He said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. In other words, Paul, he saw this light shine all around him. He heard this voice speaking specific words. And those that were around him, they didn't hear the words. But Paul did. He was greatly affected by them. This isn't something where he was getting heat stroke because he's going to tell this story over and over again. Many times when people have kind of delusions and things that go on, they can't retell the story this clear. And so Paul, he expresses, there were other people around. They saw the light, but they didn't hear the voice. This message was just for me. And those who were with me, says, indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise, I want you to go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. When anyone has an interaction where the Lord steps into their life and speaks to them, number one, they will never be the same. And if they are, I would question whether or not they actually had an interaction with the Lord or if it was just, you know, like they thought they heard something. But Paul here, his two responses, well, three responses to the Lord stepping down into his situation were, number one, he was humbled. He fell to the ground. Number two, he responded and said, who are you, Lord? The reality, I recognize you're here. Who are you? Jesus responded, he said, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Why are you persecuting me? And then his third response is seen right there. He said, okay, what do you want me to do? See, anybody that's been touched by the the love of Christ and has been expressed to by the Lord, hey, I, I am the Lord of all, and really recognizes that, has repented of their sins, their first response should be, who are you, Lord? 
What is your place in my life? He says, I'm Jesus, I'm your Lord now. Our second response should be, cool, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to serve you? What should my life look like in order to bring you glory? So that was Paul's response. He says, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said, arise, go to Damascus. He doesn't give him the big picture. He starts with step one. Step one, I want you to go to Damascus. So Paul does that. He says there, you will be told what I want you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, verse 11, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Isn't it funny that Paul was headed to Damascus to persecute and drag people out of their homes that believed in Jesus, but by the time he arrived there, he was number one, a believer, and number two, he had had his fangs removed. You guys watch that Christmas special, um, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? I, I watch it every year. It's like one of those traditions. It's like, hey, it's on, we gotta watch it. But what is the, uh, what is the name of the explorer guy? Yukon Cornelius. And uh, he's, he's out there looking for the abominable snowman. And, of course, he's got the little, you know, the guy that he's supposed to be an elf, but he really wants to be a dentist. And so he's trying to find his identity. And I don't even know where they come up with this stuff. But they show up in the cave, and they're, they're surrounded by the abominable. They knock him over with some rocks. And what does the dentist do? He removes the teeth. And basically after that, Yukon Cornelius says, hey, we don't have to be worried about him anymore because he gets back up. They're like, oh no, what are we going to do? He says, hey, I already removed his teeth. He, he's got nothing if he doesn't have any teeth. And so then he kind of growls at him and scares him out and off the cliff he goes. And he doesn't die because apparently abominable, they bounce. So anyway, I don't know what my point was there. Other than when you remove the teeth of something dangerous, they can no longer harm you. Paul had basically, the Lord humbled him and removed his teeth. And when he removed his teeth, his reason for persecuting, recognizing who he was and that he was actually, instead of serving God like he thought, he was against God. Paul goes, oh, wait a minute, I need to reevaluate what I'm spending my time doing. And because of that, Paul recognized he was humbled. And I love that because when he gets to Damascus, he's no longer going to persecute the church but God's actually going to use the church to minister to Paul. Those he was going to go kill end up being the ministers of mercy to him. And so then a certain Ananias, who was there in Damascus, a devout man according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, he came to me and he stood and he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. So the first words of the church from Ananias to this man who had been against and hurting the church or brother. I love that. He didn't call him, hey, you guy that was coming here to take us, drag us out of our homes. He says, brother. He receives him as a family member. I love this. He says, brother, be healed. Receive your sight. So not only was he called a family member, but the words that he heard were words of healing. I want you to receive your sight, Saul. And he did. Right there, the Lord healed him. I lost my place. Oh, there it is. And at that same hour, I looked up at him. And then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you. This is Ananias' words. He says, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should, number one, know his will. Number two, that you should see the just one. In other words, that you should see Jesus. 
And number three, that you'd hear the voice of his mouth. And Paul had already experienced this. He saw the light. He saw the chosen one. And he received his words. And then he says in verse 15, For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? He says, what are you, what are you standing around for? Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now these words would be monumental to Paul because Paul had spent his whole life living and following the law to the T. His works were what were going to get him to heaven. And so when Ananias says, what are you waiting for? Arise, be baptized, and have your sins washed away. You don't need to go do more works. Number one, you need to be cleansed. Let the Lord do the cleansing. Your works can't cleanse you. Jesus can cleanse you. Just let him be baptized. By faith, trust him to cleanse you with his blood. Verse 17, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple that I was in a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. Now, you've got to realize that between verse 16 and 17, several years have passed. It's not like Paul just jumped straight into the ministry. God doesn't do that. Well, let me say, there are very few times where God does that. What he did is he sent Paul to the desert in Arabia. We know this from his epistles. He went out to the desert, and he got what I would call his backside of the desert degree. The Lord taught him from the scriptures during that time. He had a time where he was just going to be ministered to by the Lord and to learn his ways. But it happened when he returned to Jerusalem after that. He was in the temple and the Lord spoke to him. He said, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know, they know me. They know my past. They know what I used to spend my time doing. He says, Lord, they know me, that I, in every synagogue, I imprisoned, and I beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr, Stephen, was shed, that was in Acts chapter 6 and 7, I was also standing by, I was consenting to his death. I was a part of that. His blood is on my hands. And guard, I was guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And then Jesus said to him, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. So Paul's now looking back on his previous life, recognizing that he's now been forgiven, but now he's convicted about all the things that he did in his former life. And he's like, Lord, they know that I used to beat believers. They know that I was standing there when one of their deacons was testifying that I needed to believe in Jesus, and I consented, I approved of his death. See, Paul wasn't throwing the stones, but as a leader of the Jewish faith, standing there, just being there with them while they were stoning Stephen for believing in Jesus, he was just as guilty as anybody who threw a rock. All he was doing was playing the coat rack. He was holding their stuff. And Paul was like, I'm just as guilty. I'm guilty of his death. They know who I am. And so Jesus confirms once again, he says, get out of here. For I'll send you far from here to the Gentiles. And over the book of Acts, that's what we've been studying. He went all over the known world at that time, proclaiming Jesus to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. 
Now we know that every city he went into, first thing he did was he went to the Jews because he was Jewish. He could relate with them. Verse 22. And they listened to him because Paul, this whole time, he's addressing this crowd of Jews in the temple. And it says they listened to him until this word because he, he said, he was telling them, hey, Jesus told me I'm supposed to depart and I'm supposed to go and share the gospel with the Gentiles. And they, they, were, they were on track with his message until this point because the Jews thought that they were God's chosen people. They basically assumed that God didn't love the Gentiles. Many of them actually believed that the only reason that God created Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. Pretty strong words, pretty strong belief, huh? So, but that's not the Lord's heart at all. And Paul tells them this. He goes, hey, he's called me as an, as a, as an apostle to go and share the good news with the Gentiles. Verse 22, they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he's not fit to live. He doesn't deserve to live. Then as they cried out, they tore off their clothes and they threw dust into the air. Now, this would seem weird to us, except if you've ever seen a child throw a temper tantrum, what do they do? They start throwing stuff and kicking stuff and breaking their toys and hitting the wall. Not that I've ever broken a drywall wall because I was throwing a fit, but I have. You know, we throw a temper tantrum. And that's what they're doing. They're like, absolutely not. This guy's made us completely upset. We can't even control ourselves. We're so mad. So, but this is the way that they would express their disapproval. You can imagine. And then it says, the commander ordered him, meaning ordered Paul, to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So they're going to basically do the good cop, bad cop thing, except they're just going to use the bad cop side of things. They're going to tie up Paul, and they're going to what they would call examine him. Now, I don't know about you guys, but in our culture, we don't examine people this way. We put them under a hot lamp, and then we start firing questions, and we accuse them of things until they'll finally fess up, and we'll threaten them with jail time or whatever it takes so Paul, he doesn't get this nice treatment of just a heat lamp. He gets tied up, and they're going to beat him with a cat of nine tails until he fesses up to what's really going on. Because the leader of the garrison, those that were around there, though Paul had just given this great testimony to the Jews, he did it in Hebrew, so they didn't know what he was saying. So Paul, he gets ready to get tied up, and as they bound him with thongs, it's not flip-flops or any other thing that you might think of when you hear the word thongs. That's just leather straps. They bound him. And Paul said to the centurion, the one that was over him, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and is uncondemned? I haven't been put to trial yet. I'm a Roman citizen. You can't just beat me without giving me a fair trial. Paul knew he had rights. But notice he waited until he had already testified to call on those rights. He's going to kind of save his own skin here. And when the centurion heard him ask this, he went and he told the commander saying, take care what you do for this man is a Roman. Because they knew if they were to, go to beat an uncondemned or a, 
a Roman that hadn't had a fair trial, that they could themselves experience the same kind of punishment. So they kind of back away. They're like, wait a minute. <laughs> Maybe we need to think about this. Is he really a citizen? And the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? And of course, Paul's not, he says, yes, of course I am. And the commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. In other words, you're a Roman. I don't know if I believe you because for me to become a Roman citizen, I could pay a lot of money. I could bribe a lot of people. I had to buy my citizenship. How'd you get yours? And uh, Paul says, I was born a citizen. I'm not just some guy that bought in. I was born here. Like I have all the rights. And so then immediately those who were about to examine him, I like that word, examine him, those who were about to beat him and kind of ask him questions while they were beating him, they withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman and because he had bound him. See, he was worried about even being part of binding this man because even just tying him up, he could be guilty of charges and have to be punished himself. So the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, the commander released him from his bonds and he commanded the chief priests and all their counsel to appear, and they bought, excuse me, they brought Paul down and set him before them. So Paul's going to go through a series of trials, and every time that he gets to the end of it, they won't find anything that he's actually done worthy of punishment. But every time he's going to appeal, you understand the system of appeals, you kind of start with the local court, and then if they don't come to a conclusion, or if they even condemn you, you can appeal to a higher court until you get to the the highest authority, and then if you feel like you're not getting tried properly, they can give you another trial. So Paul's going to do this. But Paul hasn't done anything wrong. He could very well say, hey, why don't you just let me go? And he's going to have that option. But every time he goes to a higher court, he's going to get to tell more and more people about the gospel. He feels like God's calling on his life is to speak to the leaders and even to be chained in these prisons to prison guards to share the gospel. But before we get there, why would Paul even want to talk? Why would Paul even take the time or even waste his breath talking to these people that are unreasonable and trying to beat him? These Jewish self-righteous leaders. These people that are in the temple, supposedly there to worship God, and yet they have a desire to beat down the people that are trying to make offerings in the temple of God. Why would Paul take the time? Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And this is where we'll close. I was reading this on Friday in my daily devotional. And Paul writes here and expresses to Timothy why he does what he does. He says to him in verse 12 of chapter 1 in 1 Timothy, he says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. So he recognizes that it's God who has enabled him to testify of the grace of God. But I love what verse 13 says. He has already told him what he's called to. He's counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, 
a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. In other words, Paul goes, hey, before I was walking and serving Jesus Christ, I was an insolent man. I rejected him. I was blaspheming against him. And God's mercy, he didn't give me what I deserved because he knew that I was doing it ignorantly. And so as I was ignorantly thinking I was serving God and actually against him, Paul recognizes that all these Jews that are trying to beat him, they're doing it because they're ignorant about Jesus Christ. So he gives them another opportunity to hear the testimony and to receive it by faith. He says, this, these people, where they're at right now, that's where I came from. Paul's got a proper perspective of where he came from. He doesn't forget you know, people that start big companies that come out of the woodworks and grew up with nothing. They can very easily lose perspective of where they came from and not care about the people that come from where they come from. And in Christianity, it can be very easy for us to forget where we came from, what sins that God has forgiven of us, what things that we did against Jesus before we believed in him. And if we forget where we came from, it's very easy for us not to forgive those who sit against us that don't believe. Because we think, well, I was saved, but now I'm like God's chosen vessel. So of course, God's going to use me and I'm going to tell people, you're a sinner and you need to be forgiven. But God doesn't do that. He's a gentleman. He sends people to us, just like he sent Jesus to us, that can relate to our situation. He sends people to us that are also partakers of the same forgiveness that they're going to receive. And Paul recognizes this. Verse 14, he says, The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant. In other words, it was overflowing. God, not only not giving me what I do deserve, but giving me what I don't deserve, which is his love. It was overflowing with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. He says, this is a faithful saying, and it's worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He says, of whom I am the chief. Paul started his ministry. He said, you know what? I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm one of the 12, but I'm the least of all. I'm, I'm not the, the best. You know, I'm, I'm just only in the top 12. But then later in his life, as he continued to walk with the Lord, and as he really understood and remembered all the things that he had done, and the Lord's like, I forgave you of that. Just walking with him daily, he'd be reminded of all those things that he did against the Lord, remembering that God's grace even covered that. And then at the end of his life, you know what he said to Timothy? He said, I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm not the least of all the apostles. I'm the chief of all sinners. I'm the worst. And he even says there, however... It's for this reason, because I was the chief of all sinners, it was for this reason that I obtained God's mercy. That in me first, Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering, or the word would be patience, as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. If you've been saved for, before everybody in your family, and you, you're surrounded at Christmas time with lots of people that don't believe in Jesus, Maybe the proper perspective should be, it's because you are the worst. And if you can be saved, anybody can have hope. 
If I would have that perspective around my, my own parents, my own family, and I would just walk humbly and say, God saved me first because everybody can walk around me and go, I remember who that guy was. I can see the change in his life. And if God saved him and has been patient with him, there's room for me. I'm not nearly as bad as he is, you know. Now, I shouldn't have that attitude, but others might have that attitude about me, and they could, because I know who I am. I know what I've done. And I'm up here today, not because I'm a good student of the Bible, but because God knows I need to study the Bible more than anything in order to keep me from being a complete train wreck. And so the Apostle Paul, he just goes, I'm just... Me being saved before the rest of these Jews is just so that they'll understand that God is patient. And if I can be saved, anybody can. Paul had proper perspective that led to him wanting to tell everyone he met. And I guess my prayer is that you and I would all have that same perspective in this Christmas season. Recognizing that Jesus, when he left heaven and he left his throne room, which I... There are many times I don't want to leave my home, and I guarantee that it's nothing as nearly as nice as his throne room. He left it willingly to put on human flesh that would sweat, that would wear out, get tired, so that he could live a life that you and I can't live on our own, so that he could pay for our sin, not counting them against us anymore. He didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And so that's the message. Paul gets up and he tells them, I know where you're coming from because I came from you. He says, and I know what you're thinking that I think I'm better than you. But the reality is, is I know I'm worse than you. And you need Jesus just as much as I do because we're all in the same boat together. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm just here to tell you that because I was the worst, God saved me first so I could tell you about it. So may we recognize that that's what God's given us and may we share that same gospel. You may not be able to quote Bible verses and that's okay. Maybe one day you'll get there. You may not be able to express to somebody the idea of salvation and how it all happens in a nuts and bolts kind of way. But you can share the testimony of how God took you from someone who was against him, humbled you, and made you his servant. And they'll be able to tell if your life's different. The people that live around you, the people that knew you before Christ, they should be able to see a difference. And if they can't, you should check and say, Lord, am I really serving you like I think I am? So let's pray. Father, thank you for the life of Paul the Apostle. Thank you that he's no different than you and I, uh, us here today. Thank you that he is an example of your grace. And thank you that each one of our lives, whether we realize it or not, if we'll walk with you humbly, it's a billboard saying, hey, I needed Jesus because I was a sinner. And Father, we still struggle with the flesh. We still need you on a day-to-day -day basis. Help us to live a lifestyle of repentance, turning away from our old ways, asking you to change us and to teach us your ways. Father, use us in the lives of those that we'll see this week. Thank you that we get to celebrate you coming to us and living amongst us and relating to us. I pray that we would live amongst our families. We live amongst our coworkers. That we'd be an example of your grace. That we would love them like you love us. That we'd be willing to speak to them 
and to pray for them and to bless them, whether they believe in you or not. And Father, I just, uh, I love you. I thank you for your word that's transformed my life. Help us to share the testimonies that we have of how you've worked in our hearts and in our lives. And Father, help us to give you all the glory as we celebrate Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.